and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. And uh, before I get into Hebrews chapter 10, I do want to just remind that uh, if many people are going to be baptized at the lake today, but there's also a picnic, and so we'd love for anybody and everybody to come. A lot of times uh, what happens with the picnic and baptism at the lake is only those who know somebody that's getting baptized come, but it's open, and really we'd love for the whole church to come and be a part of that. So we'll provide drinks and some chips and some desserts, but you'll need to grab, if you didn't bring lunch, just you know run through In-N-Out Burger or something on your way up there and uh, bring your own lunch and then join us up there. It should be a really fun time. We'll have some food and some fellowship together. We'll have a little time of testimony from those who are being baptized and then we'll go down to the water and, and do the baptism. So we'd love for anybody and everybody to come and be a part of that. The other thing I want to ask really quick is how many of you went over to the cafe and had a coffee this morning? You go over there and get a coffee? Okay, yeah. So how many of you here last week and heard the neck tattoo joke? Yeah, you guys see all the ladies with their neck tattoos? Were the, did the lattes live up to the expectation? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah, just, just temporary. Anyway, that was the joke last week. Uh, th- this week, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the idea of, you're going to see these words in the scripture, that in God's eyes, you and I, if we're in Christ Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's died on the cross for your sins, you place saving faith in him, he rose from the dead, you believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father to intercede for you and return someday, you've trusted in his gospel, um, then th- the scripture says that you've been perfected purified and your sin has been taken away. And so when we talk about things like this, these positional truths that we hold as Christians in Jesus Christ, a lot of times they can sound too good to be true, right? Um, If you were to think about yourself and, and go perfected, right? That's kind of a big statement. Purified, my sin is taken away. That might sound too good to be true. And so when we talk about, you know, there's the optimist, the pessimist, and the realist, and there's some other ones up there for you as well. But um, we, we tend to approach theology and what God says to be true about us and our identity in him this way. We tend to be maybe overly optimistic that sin is not a problem anymore, um, that, that there's nothing more for us to do or, or uh, actions to take for us to be in a place where our sin is covered, where it's not just covered, but it's washed away, where we're forgiven. You might be a pessimist, and there's sort of this worm theology within Christianity where we kind of look at ourselves as a wretched man, and there's no way that we could win, and uh, this just we're doomed to fail until Jesus Christ comes back and there's sort of that pessimistic viewpoint of who we are as, as Christians. And then the realist would recognize that both of these statements are something that are true. Uh, Christ has made us alive in him. All of our sins are forgiven and forgotten. Uh, the penalty of sin is, is taken care of with Jesus' death on the cross. The power of sin is something that we can defeat as we walk and step with the Spirit in the here and now. And eventually, the very presence of sin within our bodies upon Christ's return or our death and, and ascension to heaven... Uh, then, uh, then the, the very presence of sin is done away with. And so a realist would say those things are true. 
Um, both sides of this are true. One more little joke here for you. The, the pessimist sees a dark tunnel. The optimist sees a light at the end of the tunnel. Realists see a train coming down the tunnel, and the engineer sees three idiots standing on the track. Um, <laughs> So as we look at this, we don't want to be that, that kind of like overly optimistic, everything's fine, there's no problem for, for us to deal with with sin, um, but we don't want to be pessimists and view ourselves as incapable of, of having victory in life because that's not what God says to be true. We want to be in that place where we recognize that sin is real, but Jesus Christ has dealt with it, and if we're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, not only are we going to be justified, but we're going to be sanctified and eventually glorified to look just like Christ when in the heavenly realm. So we want to have this, this right perspective perspective on these things, but I also want to say that some of you in the room, this might be a message that frees you, um, because you are defining yourself based upon your sin. You're calling your sin pattern who you are. Uh, you're saying, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a porn addict, I'm, and, and people do this, they make their sin who they are, and that is not who God calls you. This may be a message that frees you. The other thing that, we're, that might free you is I'm going to show you how if you put yourself under a rules-based system, you're going to experience guilt and shame, you're going to experience a lack of freedom, but God has something better for you. So let's take a look at this together in Hebrews chapter 10. So since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect a worsh the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away or remove sins. And so we've been talking about how what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's sort of drawing from Judaism and the sacrificial system and the Mosaic law and demonstrating how Christ is better than that old system. And so what he talks about here is he's talking about how those sacrifices, bulls typically done for the priesthood, goats usually done for the people of the nation, um, when those were offered time after time, year after year, they didn't have what was necessary to perfect or purify believers or to take away sin. It did give them a consciousness of sin. They were aware that they were sinful. Um, and it did remind them of their sins over and over again, but it couldn't make them holy. So following the law has no power to perfect or purify us as sinners. The law gives a guilty conscience with reminders of sins, but has no power to remove sin. So this is something that you don't have to be Jewish to do this. The Jewish system under the law was very much keep the rules. If you didn't keep the rules, uh, then you were aware of your sin. You had, you had to offer sacrifices and do these types of things. And so there was this over and over a reminder, I'm sinful and, <laughs> and I need help. Right? That was the, the message over and over again. I'm sinful and I need help. The law, what it couldn't do was remove sin. It could cover it. And that's what the Old Testament sacrifices did. They, they covered sin, but they couldn't take the sin away and make a person pure or perfect. 
And there are many systems within Christianity that don't listen to what the scriptures have to say, quite frankly, and put people under a system of law and cause them to think that it's up to them to live out the system of the rules and regulations. And what I can tell you is if you do that, if you put yourself under a system of law, even the very best system of law, if you do that, you will not be in a position where your sins are removed. You will be aware that you're guilty. You will experience shame and you will uh, find yourself conscious that you have sinned and that you are a sinner. If you put your under, yourself under a system of rules, that's what it will do to you. Okay. And so he's telling them that there's a better way. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he, God said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in a scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And this is a quote from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. What we do find in the Old Testament is two things, very clear. One is that the, the religious system and the Mosaic law and the sacrificial system, it made people aware of their guilt. It made people have consciousness of sin. It made people turn to God for a remedy for that sin. But it was also clear that the remedy of these animals was not permanent, that there was a the better sacrifice that was coming. And so we see the suffering servant, the, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to give his life so that the people could be freed from the consequences of sin. Psalm 40 is another place where this is revealed, that there's a, going to be a better way, a better system, a better sacrifice that's going to cover people's sins. And so what we see here is that, thanks be to God, his will is that none should perish, but everyone come to everlasting life through faith and repentance in his son. You have to understand, this is God's desire, that no one in this room would perish and find themselves guilty of their sin, but instead everyone would receive everlasting life and freedom and forgiveness from their sins to be remembered no more by looking at Jesus Christ on the cross and being healed. Right? And so another place where a story shows up that, that Jesus picks up on in John chapter 3 is in Numbers chapter 22. The Israelites, they're wandering in the desert and they're griping against God and they're rebelling against God and God sends in these snakes, these fiery serpents to bite them. And they, they recognize that God has sent the serpents and that it's actually a punishment for their rebellion and disobedience towards him. And they go to Moses and they say, Moses, talk to God and, and let's, let's repent and get right with God. And so God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze snake and I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to lift it up and anyone who looks at the bronze snake on the pole, they'll be healed. And so if you look at God's remedy in faith, you will be healed. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that just as the bronze serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man will be raised up. And he's referencing his death on the cross, that anyone who looks at Jesus' death on the cross will receive God's remedy for sin. But you have to do it in faith, right? You don't just look and then look away. You look and you believe. You believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the remedy for your sin. It is the payment for your sin, and you have been freed and forgiven because of his death on your behalf. This is God's will, that you wouldn't perish and be guilty of your sin. The passage we looked at last week said that uh, after death, everyone is appointed to receive judgment. And I asked you, if, what are you waiting for? Why would you wait for a better offer than Jesus Christ dying on the cross on your behalf so that you could be forgiven? And, and the answer within the scriptures, what you're waiting for, if you don't 
turn to Jesus and trust him is you're waiting for judgment. You're waiting for the guilt of your sin to be poured out on you rather than on him. He wants you to receive everlasting life, not to perish. He goes on. As he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. Then he says, see, I have come to do your will. And that word will, we looked at the word will last week, and it was like an end-of-life testament. At the end of someone's life, their will takes effect. This word will, um, it means a decision that initiates action. So he says, then, then he says, see, I've come to do your will. He takes away, he destroys the first covenant that was made under Moses to establish a second one. And this is the will, the decision that initiates action on God's behalf. This is his will. God, this is what he wants for you, that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. That's God's will for you, that you would be forgiven and freed through Jesus's payment on your behalf so that you could be sanctified, set apart, and made a member of his household. And no matter what you do, that's who you are. You're a member of his household. You're a child. You're a co-heir with Christ. You are secure within his family. And that happens because Jesus offered his body once for all time. And so what we see in this is that God has destroyed the system of guilt and shame, the old covenant, through a new covenant, which he dedicates and makes holy all who trust in the sacrifice given on the cross by his son, the one and only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Messiah, the savior of the world. And so that's what God has done. That's his will for us, that he would transfer us out of darkness and into light, as the song said, which is a quote from 1 Peter, that we would be moved from darkness and and being outside of his family into his family, that we would experience uh, a life that's, that's not our own, that we would be made new. And then he goes on, he says, every priest stands day by day, ministering, offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. So he's referencing the Old Testament system, day after day, time after time, never took away sins. Covered them, but it didn't deal with them completely. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So he's sitting down. His work is complete. You see, the work of the Old Testament priest to cover sin, that was never ending. Jesus is done. It's finished. That's actually what he yelled out on the cross as he yelled out the, the Greek word tetelestai, which means paid in full, that is translated it is finished. And that word was written when people were enslaved, not the way that we think of slavery, but somebody was like an indentured servant. They owed somebody a debt and they signed up to work off the debt through maybe seven years of labor within that person's house. And at the end of seven years, their certificate of debt that was owed to that household would be the word tetelestai would be written on it, paid in full. And what Christ does for us is he yells out from the cross that our certificate of debt that held us hostage and in bondage to a household that we did not wish to be a part of has been paid in full so that we could be transferred into a household that we would love to be a part of, his own. And that's what he has done for us. That's work, the, work, the finished work of Jesus. He's sitting, that's why it says it back here. He's 
I don't know what, this thing doesn't want to obey me. Um, he's, he's sitting down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting here is it says that he's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Uh, there's this idea that, that he's waiting, that he's coming back, and we're to anticipate Jesus' return, but he's actually anticipating coming back as well. That Jesus is looking forward to come and getting you and I because he longs to be with us on a deeper, more full salvation than we have right now. He wants to bring that to us. That's what he's, he's excited to give to you and I. That's pretty interesting to think about. That while we are anticipating and longing for his return, he's going, I can't wait to come get you. I can't come wait to bring you and show you everything that I have for you. He's longing to do that. The other side of it, as as the righteous judge of the universe, he can't wait to eradicate sin and death. He can't wait to send evil where it belongs. But his victory at that point will be final. But his work is done. It's finished. It's paid in full. He sits in triumph over sin and death, and he can't wait to come get you and I. Then in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31 where the new covenant is being prophesied. It's the foretold what's going to happen in the new covenant, the new relationship with God that Christ says has been initiated by his blood poured out for us. The other place we see that is in Ezekiel chapter 36. There's two major chapters that explain the, the coming of the new covenant and what Jesus said he brought about through his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he says, now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What I want you to get out of this is that the new covenant is now, Okay. The, the new covenant is not something that we're waiting for. The new covenant is now. And when you read Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah 31, you'll see that God is offering to us these things. He's giving us, you could say, he's giving us a shield. And the Spirit of God indwells you as a follower of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. Christ is at the right hand of the Father in a, in a spiritual position. We are there with him. He's anchored us inside the sanctuary. But he's also sent his Spirit to indwell every follower of Jesus Christ. Christ. And so God is with you and I all the time. We talk about the penalty of sin being paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. The power of sin is being overcome, should become overcome through us as we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God indwells you. The other thing we see here is that the heart is made new. Now this is one that's a little bit tricky. Because when you read about the heart within the Bible, you'll find a couple of passages that are very often quoted by people. One is Jeremiah 17, that the, it says the heart, the human heart is deceptive beyond all things. Uh, that it's, that, and then Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 that wickedness and the lawless acts that we do come from our heart. That, but that's an old covenant statement. You have to understand that that's not true of you if you're in Jesus Christ. Because God has taken out your old heart and he has put a new one in. So your old heart was deceptive beyond all belief. But the new one within you that matches his desires, it's not that. The old one that was within you brought forth wickedness and lawless deeds. But the new one that God has given you should produce righteousness and fruit. And so you have to understand that when people try to apply that verse to somebody, they're, they're saying that we should go back to the old covenant as Christians. But we don't live in the old covenant. We live in the new. 
We live with forgiveness and freedom. We live with a new heart. And so if you view yourself, sort of that worm theology, as somebody with a broken heart that could never please God, then you're viewing yourself not according to what God says is true of you in the new covenant. You've been made new. You have a new heart. That's not who you are. And remember last week I told you that God offers a, a being that precedes doing transformation. He causes you to be something, and that results in behavior. Well, what we are is dependent upon our belief. I am, I am who God says I am. And he says I have a new heart. He says that he's given me a brand new set of desires. And so my belief is not that I'm a wretched man who can't win. Read the rest of Romans, by the way. If you want to apply wretched man to yourself, read what Paul says. He says, thanks be to God that the same spirit that gives life to the dead indwells us. Well, that's not, we're not a wretched dead man. We're made alive. We're new people. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, that we had to be born again in John chapter 3. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe based upon what God says, not what I feel or think, but what the Word says. And based upon that, my belief is going to match what God says about my identity, and then my actions are going to flow from there. But if you believe you can't win, you won't. But if you believe you can't win... You don't agree with the Bible because it says you can. It says that when we, when we keep in step with the Spirit, we will not engage in the deeds of the flesh. And so the Spirit of God lives in us. Our heart is made new. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. You are not your sin. You are not your sin. You are not someone else's sin that they did to you. You are not the problems of your past. You are not the mistakes of your current you are not even the mistakes that you're going to make 20 years from now. That is not who God says you are. He calls you very different things than that. And if you have to believe this. This has to be something that you take hold of and you believe. Because if you believe you're broken, if you believe you're sin, if you believe you can't win, you won't. And then you'll come crying that Christianity doesn't work. But you wouldn't have been practicing Christianity. So he gives you a new identity in Jesus Christ. Every sin is forgiven and forgotten. Oh, you're not your past. Every sin is forgiven and forgotten. And like I said, not just the ones in the past, but your mistake later this week and the one 20, 30, 40 years from now, it's forgiven and it's forgotten. That's not who you are. And so you need to receive the grace of God. It's hard to believe. <laughs> right? Is this hard to believe? Would you forgive someone like this? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. But God does. And then we see that the laws of God are written on our heart and mind. His very ways are written on our hearts and our minds. And we have direct access to Him. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through some special person or prayer or building. You, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you get to go straight to God because Christ has brought you there. So this is amazing truth. God gives you this, this shield. Now, you might be saying, that's great, but I don't feel like it's true. Um, that all looks good on paper, but how can it show up in my practice? And this is a valid question. If you're asking this question, this is a valid question. Uh, that all looks great, but it doesn't feel true to me. I understand that's what the Bible says, but how does it show up in what I do this afternoon? That's a, that's a valid question. It's one you should ask. 
And so I'm going to share with you a little video here. Is, it, is the video next? No. I'm going to share with you one more thing before that. Um, this phrase that was at the beginning of the, of the passage, consciousness of sin and reminder of sins. We've talked about consciousness as we've gone through this. And a cleansed conscience not only understands what is right and wrong according to God's standards, but it also understands who is right and wrong according to God's standards. Not only can I perceive and understand and know what God's laws and what's best and what's right, um, the what, but I can also know who. And so a person with a cleansed conscience has no sense of prolonged guilt or shame because they know Jesus has made them flawless according to God's standards. As far as being justified with God is concerned, you are flawless. It is paid in full. You owe him nothing. There's no more debt. As far as God is concerned, in the here and now, you are flawless when, according to your identity. You are flawless according to keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Can our flesh draw us towards sin and we walk out of step with the Holy Spirit? You bet. But God has a remedy for that too to, so that you can remain flawless, so that you can remain righteous. And so somebody needs to hear this. Your sense of prolonged guilt and shame is not from God. Your depression, your addiction, your anxiety, you calling yourself your sin is not who you are. And your sense of prolonged guilt and shame is not from God. It's not. Why would he give you a sense of prolonged guilt and shame when Christ took it on the cross? He didn't die so that we could be bound by the law or bound by guilt or shame. He died. Christ gave us freedom so that we would be free. We want to live there. Not under the law, making rules for ourselves to follow that we can't keep up to, but also not under a sense of we could just do whatever we want. But the freedom that he's given us is very different from that. And so now, this little video. Um, don't play it just yet. Uh, the, who's seen the Ice Age movies? Ice Age? Ice Age? You guys know Scrat, the saber-toothed squ squirrel? Okay. So Scrat is always panicking, right? He's always kind of like losing his mind, and he's doing things that get himself into trouble. And so I want you to watch this video real quick. So we tend to be that squirrel. Getting ourselves in trouble, looking for a way out. And so I want you to follow along with me. This is, Joel came up with this years ago, Ekrat. I'm calling it Scrat. Um, and so here's, if you find yourself in a position where you're going, I have a, I have a sense of guilt and shame. I, I have a feeling that sin is a problem. What should I do? Should you just sit there and go, I don't know what it is. I actually think that's the, 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 one of the darkest places that Satan can put you is you know something's wrong, but you, you don't have the information to know what. And so you have, you have a nebulous sense of guilt and shame. And, and there's no way to define it. And so God says, in, he tells us in Psalm 139, to search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, and know my concerns. See if there is any offense in my way, and lead me in the everlasting. So what are we doing here? We're saying God... I want you to evaluate things. I know something's not right. And I want you to reveal to me what it is. 
I want you to show me as, as your child and as somebody that, that loves you and I know I'm loved by you, I just realize there's something that's keeping me from staying in step with you. Will you reveal it to me? And he's faithful to do this. And then if he reveals something, then you confess any known sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. You're aware of a specific sin in your life. That word confess means you agree with God. This isn't you paying some sort of penance or beating yourself up. You're saying, God, I recognize that your standards are the right standards. In fact, you've written them on my heart and on my mind. I know them to be true. You revealed me to me a place where I've been out of step with your standards and your way of living. And so I, I agree with you. I confess that that's not the way that I want to live. And what he does for us is he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He maintains our state of flawlessness. He does it for us based upon his son's work on our behalf. And then we review who we are in Christ. There's a bunch of places where you could do this. I'm sharing with you 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So one of the things that we might need to review for ourselves when we're encountering sin and we recognize it for what it is and we confess it to God, uh, the, the, the word isn't in this, but it's implied. Many of the New Testament writers, they called themselves a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And that word bond slave, there's two different slave, words for slave in the New Testament. This one means somebody that was, I brought up, maybe they were, you were an indentured servant to somebody for, for seven years and you'd worked off your debt and you had paid your debt in full. But in your time of working in that household, you go, my master's really great. He treated me really well. I loved being a part of this household. I don't actually want to leave being a part of this household. So what they would do is they would sign up and they would say, I want to remain in this household for the rest of my days. And what the master would do is he would approve that and he would take the person to the doorpost of their house and they would pierce their ear with a nail on the doorpost of the house, remove the nail, give them an ear piercing, and they wore that with great pride as a way of saying, I am forever a part of this household. I have signed up to be a bond slave of this master. And that's what the New Testament writers call themselves of Jesus Christ. We should call ourselves that. I have willingly of my own volition, seeing how good my master is. I didn't pay off my debt. He paid it for me. And though I'm free from the consequences of sin, I see myself as someone who longs to be a part of this household, who can't wait but to wear the badge of honor of I am a child of this household. The scriptures go even further and they tell us that we've been adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son the amazing truth that they've given us. There's, there's many other places where you could review your identity in Christ, but that's a good one. Then we ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. You say, Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The idea here of wine is, what does wine do? It's an outside substance that, that controls you. So he says, don't be controlled by an outside substance, but instead, because being controlled by an outside substance leads to reckless living. The Greek word means a waste of life. When you live your life controlled by an outside substance, be it alcohol or drugs or money or fill in the blank, right? We have all sorts of outside substances that we allow to control our life. When you're controlled by an outside substance, it leads to 
a waste of life. He says, instead of doing that, be filled with, by the Holy Spirit. And that word filled, the, the way the Greek tenses come across, it's a, not a one time you did this, but an ongoing filling. We're constantly saying to God, I need your strength, I need your power, fill me. Not, I filled up a couple weeks ago and when the gas tank gets empty, I'll ask again. But I'm constantly, the needle's always on full. Um, because I'm constantly being filled by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, you go forward there in that passage and in Galatians, you'll see that what, re- what it results in is a very different way of life. Galatians talks about if we keep in step with the Spirit. And so uh, we want to walk in step with the Holy Spirit of God. And then we thank God for his provision in our life, rejoicing always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Spirit. So we, we're rejoicing always, even, maybe even especially, when God points out sin. Probably especially, right? When God points out an area of your life that doesn't match his will, and his ways, and you recognize it for what it is, and you receive the power to overcome your brokenness and live a new way. That sounds like maybe the best time to rejoice. And so maybe that's a helpful tool for you. Next time you're feeling like something's wrong, you don't know what it is, think of that crazy squirrel going nuts, and then remember scrap. Here's what we see at the end of this. Jesus died once for all so that we could be forgiven and free from sin, guilt, and shame. His goal is for you is freedom from your past, faith in your presence, in your present, and fearlessness for your future. Whatever your past is, whatever your mistakes are, God is giving you freedom from that. Whatever's going on in your life right now, if you keep in step with the Holy Spirit, if you walk in step with Him, if you're walking with Him, then you're going to be experiencing a different way of life. You're trusting Him. You keep in step with Him. And then fearlessness for your future. He's coming back, and He can't wait to do it. He's waiting, anticipating coming back to deal with these things. Let me just revisit one thing here really quick, and then I know. Well, actually, I'm doing fine. This confess part, this is hard, isn't it? When, some, when you see confess any known sin. Um, if you think about religious systems that have existed over the years, there used to be a place where you could go to a booth, a confessional, and you could share this in confidence. You could say, I have done this or that wrong, and in confidence know that it wasn't going to be shared with anyone else, and your guilt and shame would be avoided in a public setting. We don't practice that kind of, I mean, if you want to talk to me one-on-one and you need to share something, it'll be confidential and I won't share it with anyone else. And the other pastoral staff would do that. But the other way that you can do this is you can have people in your life that you know and you trust that you can share, because the scripture does say to confess to one another our sins, that you can share this. And so I would actually say it's a pretty big red flag if you don't have two or three people you could do this with. If you're isolated and you can't confess your sin and walk through the process of being cleansed, it's actually a pretty big red flag in your life. And I'll tell you, I've worked with two ministry leaders that exploded. Both of them isolated themselves. 
Both of them were unwilling to receive correction and share their life with the people around them. And so if you don't do those things and you isolate yourself, you're asking for an explosion because sin will entangle you and it will have its way with you. But that's not God's will for you. His will for you is that you'd have freedom from your past, faith in your presence, and fearlessness for your future. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, this is your will for us, that you have given us what we need to be freed from the penalty of sin through your sons, our Lord Jesus' death on the cross. That when we look to him in faith, the debt of our sin is paid in full. I thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to indwell each and every person who has trusted in your son Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that right now I can walk in step with, with him. I can turn myself over to being filled by him rather than myself or some outside substance or the culture around me. And I can walk in step with the Spirit of God. And God, I thank you that you give me a sense of fearlessness for my future. There's nothing I'm going to do that's going to cause you to abandon me. Um, there's nothing that I'm going to do to lose my salvation. But even more than that, I can live in a fearless way because I know that you are anticipating coming back for me and for your church. God, we thank you for this message of hope that you've given to us, the good news of what your son has done. And uh, we, we look forward to celebrating how this has transformed the lives of those being baptized this afternoon. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.